This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Last week we began a series. By the way, Thomas and Deborah Warren, you have little Valerie back there. Would you just stand and present Valerie? I think that's the first time she's been a slacker, first time she's gone to church. But would you welcome little Valerie? That's awesome. Here for the first time. Last week, we, uh, we began a series from the book of Romans that we're calling No Longer Slaves. And I encourage you last week, you know, try not to miss a week during this series because this is such a, a foundational series. And, and I know some of you, you were out of town. You got home at 1130 last night. And I just appreciate your, your commitment here. Um, but for those of you that didn't get in on this or for those of you that did, because we typically remember things for only about seven minutes, let me do a review. And as always, you have free access to every lesson through, through our website. In this series, we're talking about one of the most life-transforming principles in the entire Bible. But if you happen to try to speed read these middle chapters of Romans, Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, you're going to say, wow, this is confusing. Actually, when it comes to the Bible, it sounds more spiritual to just say it's deep But the reality is that at times, Scripture can be confusing, but here's what I've found. You're the most intelligent congregation that I've ever pastored. You're actually the only congregation I've ever pastored. We've been on this journey together for nearly 27 years. Can you believe that? I'm confident you will get this. Let me begin our review by asking you a very probing and and personal question. Why, why do you have so many self-destructive behaviors? And when I say you, it's, it's we, it's me, I'm there with you. But if you look at your life, and if I look at my life, even though we know better, and even though we want to do better, we all still engage in a lot of self-destructive behaviors. Why? Why is that? In fact, I I think it's safe to say that our dogs have less self-destructive behaviors than we do. You know, we've got a couple of dogs. Some of you know that. One of our dogs is about a year old. His name is Samson. Samson is a Pomeranian that weighs 10 pounds. But Samson thinks he's strong enough to take down a bear. Our other dog is also a Pom, and and she's a rescue dog. We rescued her. She had been passed down to three different owners. They all died, which worries me a little bit. Will we be next? (laughs) But this dog in between owners was with people that abused her, and she was just really skittish, especially of of men, but we took her in. The, The official name on her dog tag is Sassy. However, my grandson and I have come to call her Fat Dog. Do you want to know why we call her fat dog? Surely you can figure that one out. But just to illustrate the point that that will take us into our lesson today, fat dog has very few destructive, self-destructive behaviors, except that she's like a lot of us. She likes to eat, and it shows she's very pleasantly plump. Actually, she's just fat. But besides liking to eat, fat dog doesn't have very many bad habits. She's completely housebroken. She never has an accident. She can go all night, and I think she could go the better part of the next day if she needed to. 
She only barks when, when someone comes to the door or, or when she needs to go outside. She doesn't make a mess when she eats. Fat dog doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, doesn't chew or run with girls who do or run with dogs who do. She doesn't break the law. She even follows the rules and, and wears her little dog tag that shows she's up to date with all of her shots. She, she doesn't do drugs. She doesn't look at pornography. When it's time to go to bed, she doesn't whine and complain and throw a fit. Now, at about 9 o'clock, she may go woof, woof a couple of times saying, y'all need to start winding down. It's my bedtime. She likes her sleep. The only bad thing she does is growl at me on occasion, and she loves faith, and I don't think she loves me, probably because I call her fat dog. Also, maybe because I've learned a few buttons to push to tease her and make her growl, but her growl is more of a purr. But just so you know, she's not a cat. God forbid that I would destroy my ministry by having a cat. Just, just joking, okay? For you cat lovers, just joking. But fat, mainly joking. <laughs> fat dog or, or, or sassy isn't really even sassy. She practically has no self-destructive behaviors. But I can't say the same about you. And I certainly can't say the same about me. We, we all have plenty of self-destructive behaviors. We, we have self-destructive behaviors when it comes to our eating habits. You know, we eat too many carbs and sugars and fat and gluten. As I said last week, we should just learn that if it tastes good, spit it out because it's probably not healthy. We shouldn't eat it. We, we know we should do better when it comes to our eating habits. And then we really self-destruct when it comes to our relationships. You know, we're selfish, we're cranky, we're lazy, we're insensitive. And that's why there are so many divorces. And that's why friends many times are no longer on speaking terms. That's why some of you can't even go into a particular business here in town because you burn bridges. And then many times we self-destruct when it comes to our finances. We spend way too much money and you know, one of our UPS drivers, and we've got at least one here in the service this morning, but he was talking about how exhausted he's been at the end of the day. The stimulus money has definitely stimulated spending and has caused online orders to be at the level they were before Christmas. He says he's never seen anything like this before. And, and so for many people, they don't know how to manage their money and you know, they get a stimulus check, uh, they spend it. They get their income tax refund, it's gone. Get a buck, spend a buck. Not, not to mention our gambling friends, uh, and I hope you're not part of that group, but I heard where someone in this area happened to win pretty big at some form of gambling. The amount was not too far south of a half a million dollars. It was gone in about seven or eight weeks. Gone. We also self-destruct when it comes to addictions that destroy our bodies. They say that every cigarette we smoke shortens our lives by 11 minutes. So each carton we smoke shortens our lives by, you know, a day and a half. But that doesn't seem to stop us. How about illegal drugs, uh, such as heroin? Did you know that every time you use heroin, they say it shortens your life by 22 hours? Every time, 22 hours. And then according to... The American Addiction Center, using cocaine once a day will shorten your life by 14%. So if the average life expectancy is in the upper 70s, then that would shorten your life to upper 60s or so. 
I mean, it just goes on and on, and we're involved in so many self-destructive behaviors. Why? We know better. We know better. So why do we do it? Well, one day the Apostle Paul came to the realization that he had some self-destructive behaviors. Here's the way he said it, just as a review in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me. In other words, I'm no good. I don't feel I can do anything right. Nothing good lives in me. He goes on and says, that is in my sinful nature. And then see if you can relate to this statement. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. And I think a lot of us would say, I can relate. Been there, done that. Tried to do right, ended up doing wrong. And we might even go on and add, well, and and I've tried different things to help me do better. You know, I've gone on diets, I've gone to AA, I've gone to NA, I've gone to counseling, I've I've gotten involved in support groups, I've gotten on medication, I, I even spent some time in jail because the state felt that would help me learn some lessons. But regardless of all of that, many of us still have to say at some point, many times we go back to our self-destructive ways. And so again, my question is, why? We know better. Why? Well, last week we looked at the reason the Apostle Paul gave us. He said that once upon a time, there was a man named Adam. Remember Adam? The first man? And Adam sinned. And because we're related to Adam, when Adam sinned, You know, his sin was passed down. Jim took his out. He should have been the first one in this. (laughs) When we sinned, we became in Adam. We were in Adam. You were born in Adam. I was born in Adam. Billy Graham was even born in Adam. Mother Teresa was even born in Adam. And and even though we talked about this last week, I I want to emphasize this again. In in these verses in Romans, Paul is wanting us to understand. Now, now you put your thinking caps on here. He wants us to understand sin as a noun. Normally, we look at sin as a verb, and and it is. A a verb is a word that describes action, like I lied, I cheated, I, I stole I lusted. Those are actions in verbs. But Paul is also trying to help us the concept of of sin as a noun. Remember a noun? What we studied in school? Person, place, or thing? And so Paul is trying to help us understand sin as a thing, a power that entered the world through Adam. So when Adam sinned, it was as if all of us sinned. 
And so Paul would say that the reason you keep doing things that, that you don't want to do is because the power of sin in your life. Sin is your master, and you are its slave. Well, Paul, after talking about how he wanted to do good but ended up doing bad, he, he says something that gives us some insight into the depth of his frustration. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, What a wretched man I am. Now, that word is not a word that we use much. Uh, we don't even see that word very much in the Bible. But that word tells us a couple of things. One is, it, it's obvious, he, Paul, it, it tells us how frustrated Paul was with himself. It, it appears that he had almost reached the end of his rope. He says, what a wretched man I am. But the second thing that I get out of this statement is that whatever Paul was referring to, and I don't know what it was, and I'm glad we don't know what it was, but whatever it was, I don't believe it was a little minor issue. I, I don't believe it was something like this. Oh, man, I, I, I accidentally keep driving five miles over the speed limit. Oh, wretched man I am. I don't, I don't think it's that. Or, or my wife continues to have to remind me to take out the trash. I should do it without being reminded I am so irresponsible. Oh, wretched man I am. Now, our wife might say that about us, but... I don't think that's what Paul was referring to. Or I'm trying to eat healthy, and, but that donut was calling my name this morning. Oh, wretched man, wretched woman I am. I, I don't think it was something like taking a donut or, or not taking out the trash. For him to say, for Paul to say, oh, wretched man I am, it appears that it was a major issue that caused Paul to have a high degree of frustration. And if we were honest... I think there are moments we feel that same way. We may not say, oh, wretched man, wretched woman I am, but we think, what's wrong with me? Why can't I break this addiction? Why can't I get control of my lust, my pornography? Why can't I rid myself of these outbursts of anger where I fly off the handle and throw something or slam a door or punch the wall? Why can't I control my mouth? I get upset and say bad words or, or I say hurtful things that I regret later on. And sometimes it, it goes past just having regret because sometimes we're tempted to harm ourselves. I want you to listen here because I believe this will speak to some of you. We're so miserable, we're not sure we even want to live any longer. Well, immediately after Paul says, oh, wretched man, I am, he asks a question and, and try to capture, capture the emotion of this question. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? He says, oh, wretched man, I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, um, let me try to explain the context here. Evidently, in that day, there was some kind of tradition or at least threat to where criminals who had murdered someone as part of their sentence would be tied to a dead body. They, they would tie the, uh, the, the corpse's arms to their arms. They, they would tie their, their legs to their legs, their, their torso to their torso, and they would be face to face with this dead body and carry it around for a period of time. Now, now if this indeed were, were carried out, can you imagine... How horrible this would be. Can you imagine the stench after a few days in that Middle Eastern heat? Can, can you imagine 
the flies on that rotting flesh. Can, can you imagine having to look at the swollen and distended face of this corpse? And, and I probably don't need to describe it any further. You get the picture. Paul, using the very strongest and, and most pungent illustration possible, said, I'm so mad at myself. I'm trying to do what's right, but I fail. I, I feel like I'm carrying around this dead body, this rotting body. So he says, who will rescue me? I want to do what's right, but continually fail. Oh, wretched man I am. Somebody, please help. And some of us would say, that's me. We might add, pastor, I've tried everything I know to do to change. I've asked forgiveness over and over. I've tried to read my Bible. I've paid my tithes. I've seen a counselor. I've gone on prescription meds to control my impulses and my depression, but none of that seems to help. And, and let me just say, there's a place for all of those. I'm not against those. But I want to be very clear that those things in themselves do not take care of the power of sin. They may help keep the symptoms in check. They may help control your emotions and, and even temper your temper and your anger. But until we take care of sin, the noun, the thing, the power, the carnal nature that we were all born with, doing what Paul did, just trying harder and harder and harder, will not free us from our slavery to sin. Well, so far it's doom and gloom, isn't it? It's depressing. <laughs> Welcome to the Church of God Holiness, where we always make you feel good about yourselves here. <laughs> but up until now, it's like there's no hope. And when Paul asked, oh, who will deliver me from the body of death? We would probably respond, well, Paul, you know, you just need to accept the fact that as long as we're here on earth, we'll be a slave to sin and and every night just have to ask God to forgive us, even though we know and God knows that next day we will commit those same sins over and over. And this happens just day after day after day. But, but please listen, Paul did not say that. Now, we say that. We say, well, you know, it's just kind of the way it is. You know, we're, we're humans and we're going to just be slaves to sin until we get in our glorified body. Paul does not say that. And I pray that God will drive this truth deep into our hearts today. Paul doesn't say, well, that's just the way it is. We'll always be a slave to sin. After asking who will rescue me from this body of death, Paul takes us into the next verse that is one of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible. Are you ready for some good news? <laughs> this is life-changing. This is big. This is huge. This is dynamite. Paul is about to give us a way so that we can say with the title of this series and, and with Romans chapter 6 verse 6 that we no longer have to be slaves to sin. So Paul, after feeling wretched and miserable and asking who will deliver me from this body of death, he says this in verse 25, thanks be to God. Now, thanks be to God for what? Well, thanks be to God that the rescue from this body of death comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, Paul says the solution isn't a what. The, the solution isn't more discipline. The solution isn't more willpower, although one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Paul is saying that it's bigger than just having more self-control. 
It's bigger than medication. It's bigger than counseling. It's bigger than support groups. And thank God for all of those. But Paul is saying that the answer for why I can't do what I ought to do comes through a person, not a thing. It comes through Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something really important. I'd never noticed it until my study time this week. It it didn't say through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, He is our Savior, amen? Amen. But there's a deeper level of commitment where we make Him our Lord. It says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Being able to say, as Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, we're no longer slaves to sin, must go beyond just casually looking at Jesus as our Savior so we can go to heaven. But it must go to the level of lordship where he is Lord, Master, Ruler, Controller, of our lives. So for the remaining time today and for the next week or two, we're going to talk about how this who connects with the do. Because if I can get the who, Jesus, to connect with the do, our behavior, maybe I won't do the things I don't want to do. You got that, didn't you? And, and what Paul is going to tell us in a nutshell is that just as the single unrighteous act of one man guarantees that you were born a slave to sin you know you don't want to but you do you don't want to look at pornography but you do you don't want to be addicted but you are you don't want to lust but you do you don't want to get mad and do something stupid but you do just as the single unrighteous act of one man adam ensured that you were born a slave to sin so the single righteous act of one man frees you from slavery to sin. And to study this important doctrine, and I really want you to listen, because I don't want you to misquote me here. This doctrine has been understated, it's been overstated. And I pray that God would just help us to see what His Word really says. But we're going to backtrack. We were in Romans chapter 7. We want to go to the last part of Romans chapter 5, and then we're going to go on into Romans chapter 6. And I want to just remind you, and I do this on occasion, but you know that the chapter divisions in, in the Bible were not inspired by God. You know that. We, we, we got, you know, we got the, uh, the, the scrolls, we got the script, the manuscripts, and uh, they were just kind of long, and they just ran together. And so when they were compiling the Bible, humans, they, they said, okay, let's put a chapter heading here and then a chapter heading here because this kind of goes together, and then that way maybe the pastor won't preach more than one chapter, and it'll keep the service shorter, which that doesn't work here at this church. Um, but anyway, so chapter divisions are man-made. They're, they're, not, they're not inspired. And it's my personal opinion, I, and I understand my, my personal opinion doesn't matter, but my personal opinion that Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 should have been connected to the first verses in Romans chapter 6. I, I believe that they belong in the same chapter. But anyway, let, let's pick up our reading in Romans 5. Breaking into the middle of of verse 20. But where sin increased, listen to this verse. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, it, it appears that Paul is saying, okay, the more we sin, the more grace God gives us. Just think about that a minute. But he goes on, verse 21. So that just as sin reigned in death... 
so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now on into Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Again, put on your thinking caps. Uh, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And, and this is in reference, of course, to the verse we just read in Romans chapter 5, which is the reason that I think that these verses should have been put together in the same chapter. But it said, so where sin increased, grace also increased, which again almost makes it sound like, okay, you know, putting two and two together, if sinning causes there to be more grace, then let's just go on a sinning spree. Because more grace is a good thing, isn't it? Isn't it? So if we want more grace, we need to do more bad things. And uh, Paul addresses that. And here's what he says. Oh, oh, no, no, no. By no means. No, he's talking to you. He's talking to us as Christians. He said, uh, we died to sin. We died to sin. So if we died to sin, and Paul, you know, Paul then asks this million-dollar question. Are you listening? How can we live in it any longer? If we as Christians died to sin, how can we live in sin any longer? Now, here's what some of us smart Alex would say. We would say, well, well. Paul, you ask how we can live in sin any longer. Let me just show you. In fact, just follow me around. Follow me around for a day, and I'll show you how a Christian lives in sin. It's easy, and I don't have to put up a little post-it note on my mirror that says, remember to live in sin today. You know, it's easy. In fact, Paul, because I'm an expert on sinning, I've developed my little routine. I sin during the day. I don't want to, but I do. And so before I get into bed every night, I say, Dear Heavenly Father, forgive me of all my sins. And I was taught in Sunday school that God forgives my sin, completely wipes the slate clean, so I'm good. But I think Paul would say, Wait a minute. That's not what I was saying. I, I know how you sin. I told you I used to do the same thing myself. But he would, I think what he would say is this, why, why, why would those of you who have died to sin continue to live in it? In other words, you say you're in Christ, but you keep living in Adam. You know, for example, why do you keep treating her that way? You you say you're in Christ. Why do you keep putting substances in your body that harm your health? Why why do you keep looking at pornography? Why why do you keep saying bad words? Why do you keep being so judgmental? Why why do you keep having such a bad attitude towards people? Why have you said things and, and burned bridges and you can't go into a local business? But Paul is saying, if you died to sin and are in Christ, why would you continue to live under the power of sin? Why would you keep saying yes to a master who is no longer supposed to be your master? To which I think all of us would go, um, I don't know. Well, as we come to verse 3, it's almost as if something dawns on Paul. He says, or 
or don't you know? You know, Paul is writing to us, yes, but primarily to new Christians in Rome. It dawns on him that maybe they didn't know this theology, to which some of us might raise our hand and say, well, I'm not sure I know this theology either. Joe, I, I thought I kind of understood. I, I, I know I'm not perfect, and, and I do mess up, but when, when I do every night before going to bed, I ask God to forgive me of those sins, and that's my routine. I sin during the day, pray for forgiveness at night, then sin the same sins the next day, and then pray for forgiveness for those same sins the next night. And Paul, isn't that the struggle that we're going to have daily until we're in our glorified bodies? But here's what Paul would say. I think Paul would say, oh, there's so much more. He says, didn't you know? And then he tells us what we may or may not have known. He says, didn't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? To which we say, okay, Paul, I heard you, but that's all Greek to me. Baptized in Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. And, and Paul, I know you wrote this book, and no offense, but that's the reason I don't read Romans because it's so confusing. So cut to the chase. What does that mean? Well, when we see the word baptized, we think water baptism, and we get into arguments because the church down the road sprinkles instead of dunks, or the church down the road baptizes people right away instead of waiting a period of time like we do. Paul's not talking about that kind of baptism, okay? Here's what he's saying. Don't you know to which... The Romans to whom he was writing this probably didn't know, nor do many of us. But to illustrate this, we'll, um, we'll just take my wife. And she's probably not quite as much a sinner as some of you are. Um, trying to stay on the good side of her. Um, Faith, do you not know that... When you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. Here's my, uh, my, my granddaughter, Claire. She is just so, so sweet, but she was born in Adam. Don't you know that, that when you were baptized into Christ, you were taken out of Adam and put into Christ? Here, here's my, my, my grandson. Baptized into Christ, taken out of Adam. And, and, and some of the rest of you, Brandon, when you were baptized into Christ, you were taken out of Adam, put in Christ. Same way with you, Shorty, in Christ. And in this verse, Paul is introducing something to us that is so big. I pray that God will help us not to miss this. He's introducing to us that when we come to Jesus and not only receive forgiveness of our sins and not just make Him Savior, but make Him Lord, we're placed in Christ. And because of the death of Jesus, listen, all of the benefits of Christ's death are now applied to us. We get His death benefits. What are his death benefits? Well, that's a separate message for another time, but one of the big death benefits is that 
When we're taken out of Adam and placed in Christ, we get to go to heaven. Y'all don't seem very excited about that. We get to go to heaven. But there's more. Paul says in verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, here it is, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Say new life. New life. So not only are all of Christ's death benefits applied to us, we get to go to heaven, but this verse says that the benefits of Christ's resurrection are also applied to us. And what are those benefits? The truth is that many of us probably have not fully understood this. We, we pretty well understand the death benefit. You know, we get to go to heaven. Yay! But that's just part of the message of the gospel. The, the rest of it that many of us have not understood, and that's why Paul said, didn't you know? The, is that when we're taken out of Adam... And put into Christ, not only do we get to go to heaven, but we can live a new life here on earth. Our new life is not just in the sweet by and by. As someone said, it's in the nasty now and now as well. Well, here's Romans chapter 6. This is a powerful verse. For we know that our old self, which lets us know that there are two selves, there's, there's an old self, there's a new self. The old self was the you in Adam. The new self is the you in Christ. But it says that, for we know that our old self was crucified. Now, I, I did a word study this past week in the original Greek, and, and the word crucified here means to impale. So, we know that our old self was impaled with him. And so, you know, when we choose Christ and are placed in Christ, then our old selves are impaled, they're crucified. Why does that need to happen? Paul says, so that the body, and listen to this. I, I, I pray that God just helps us to really follow this. So that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, my reaction to this is, Oh, my word. It, is this really possible? Is it possible for our body of sin to be done away with? Well, well here's what this means. Don't, don't misunderstand me. This is not saying that we will never sin again. Please listen very carefully. This is not saying that we will never sin again. This is not saying that we will reach a state of grace here on earth where we will be exempt from sinning again. Don't walk away from here saying that's what Joe said. But here's what it means. And to fully understand this, again, we need to go back to the original meaning of the Greek word that's translated done away with, where it said that the body of sin might be done away with. The Greek word, and again, I did a word study on this this past week, it literally means that the body of sin will be rendered idle, powerless. You know, this doctrine has been so misunderstood, it has been understated, it's been overstated, but, but it means that the part of you that has been a slave to sin, habitual sins, continual sins, addicted sins, 
when we come to the place of being crucified with him, those sins that have controlled us, those sins that have ruled over us can be rendered idle. They can be rendered powerless. Uh, Of course, there may be those occasional sins that pop up. But when it comes to being a slave to sin, controlled by sin, ruled by sin, here's what Paul says in the last part of the verse. These are not my words. Remember, these are Paul's words, God's words. says that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You say, but Joe, sometimes the temptation to sin is so strong. I know. And Paul knows. But he says this, and this is huge. Have I said that before today? Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Wow. I don't say this disrespectfully, but have you ever tried to tempt a corpse? You know, we've got a funeral director here, and I don't know if he's ever tried that or not, but have you ever said, Mr. Dead Man, I've got a piece of chocolate pie here. Again, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but i got a piece of chocolate pie here with a lot of whipped cream on it. Would you like a big piece? Or, Mr. Deadman, you used to love ribeye steak, and I've got a juicy ribeye here. Can I tempt you with that? No. Once you die, those things lose their temptation. And so Paul is saying, and again, these are not my words. This is not the doctrine of some radical church but paul says that anyone who has died to their old self has been freed not necessarily from all sin but from the slavery to sin verse 11 in the same way count yourselves dead to sin dead to sin but alive to god in christ jesus so dead to sin alive to god dead to sin alive to god say that with me one two three dead to sin alive to god say it again dead to sin alive to god it keeps getting better verse 14 for sin shall not be your master now i want us to just practice something here and i know i'm going a long time today but uh we're in the slow class today. I'm in the slow class, so it takes me longer to say it. But I want us to just practice something that I, I practiced this week. And, and I literally did practice it this week. I know just saying things doesn't, certain things doesn't change anything, but it's a reminder. I want you to hear yourself say, sin is not my master. Sin is not my master. Would you say it out loud with me? Sin is not my master. Now, I want you to whisper because this week, I want you to say it, and you may not be able to say it out loud, so you're going to have to whisper. Learn to whisper it. So on the count of three, I want you just to whisper with me, sin is not my master. One, two, three. Sin is not my master. Let me close with this illustration. And this is not a perfect illustration, but maybe it'll help us to understand what happens with our new selves. Most of us know someone who has adopted internationally, and and this gets really close to home because my daughter Erica and son-in-law Gabe, they adopted my granddaughter Claire from Taiwan. And Lord willing, and this is the exciting part, in, in the next two, three, four months, I will be grandpa again. About two months ago, they received confirmation that Abigail from the country of Liberia will be joining their family and our family. I'll be papa again. 
So ad adoptions, both local as well as international, hold a very special place in my heart. But you have this baby, you have this toddler, you got maybe an older child living in an orphanage in another country with several layers of authority. You know, there's the government of that country, there's the particular state, or sometimes they call them province, and there's the authority of the orphanage. You've got the administration, the staff of that institution, and, and every single day of, of that child's life is completely dictated by the rules and the laws of the government and, and by the specific institution and, and by the people in this, in this orphanage. They tell you when to go to bed. They tell you when to get up. They, 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 you know, they assign a bed to you. And, but then, oh, it's so powerful, so emotional with the stroke of a pen. Now, if you've actually done this, you would say, well, Joe, it's a lot more than just the stroke of a pen. That's a lot of money, a lot of bureaucracy, and, but simplified. With the stroke of a pen, a legal transaction takes place. Something amazing happens. In a moment, that child goes from orphan to family member. That child goes from, in many cases, having absolutely nothing, sometimes not even enough food, sometimes wearing the same clothes every day to, by international standards, having great wealth. And you've heard of stories after they've been adopted, they, they hoard food in their rooms and they'll cling to a box of Cheerios or Lucky Charms because in the orphanage there just wasn't enough food. And if there's been any abuse for some, it takes some time to begin to trust and, and, and be able to actually love and be themselves. But for the sake of our discussion, here's what's most important. With the stroke of a pen, that government, that institution, that orphanage, those staff members, as wonderful as they may be, <clears throat> with the stroke of a pen, they lose all authority over that child. And they can write, they can text, they can call, they can show up at the door and say, we want that child back. And the new mom, dad say, sorry, you have no authority over this child anymore because he, she belongs to us. Now, here's what Paul was saying. When you were taken out of Adam and adopted into Christ, You received a new name. You received a new identity. You gained a new family. A new eternal destiny in heaven. But according to the Apostle Paul, one of the amazing benefits that most of us have never taken advantage of is that being in Christ is more than a trip to heaven, and it is that, hallelujah, but sin is no longer my master. Can you imagine that? So here's your assignment for the week. <laughs> All I'm asking you to do is that in those moments of temptation, in those moments where you're overwhelmed with despair, where you're overwhelmed with loneliness, overwhelmed with lust, overwhelmed with jealousy, overwhelmed with your addiction, and, and you find yourself heading back to that place of slavery, being your old self, wanting to do good but doing bad, all I'm asking is that you would just pause long enough to whisper, Sin is not my master. I'm dead, dead to sin, 
alive to Christ. When this becomes our new approach to life, it will change us. It will change our marriage. It will change our habits. It will change our body. It will change our health. It will change the way we think because we're not the person we used to be. We're no longer in Adam. Sin is no longer our master. We're in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would drive this truth home. Lord, we don't want to understate it. We don't want to overstate it. But God, I think it's in your word. We've been living way below our privileges. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for your presence. Thank you for your your goodness. We love you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.